0: The text for the the sermon this day is taken from the reading from Mark, which writes, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. That is the text. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're kind of we're slowly working through the first chapter of Mark. It's taken us a little over a month. I guess we Lutherans are slow or something. Actually, it's not just Lutherans, because Lutherans, Catholics, Methodists, they're on the same lectionary, so we're all taking a while to get through it. Anyways, last week, we had Life Sunday, but the Gospel lesson for last Sunday had a very peculiar, interesting little verse. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee... Preaching repentance and the gospel of the kingdom of God. That was a very striking sentence. And the reason is, it's because for the people, the original readers of that text, they knew exactly what that meant. See, it's just like when I moved here, and people, and actually still this happens, people try to tell me where something is, they'll say, well, it's right next to where such-and-such such used to be. Which I'm like, I don't know where such-and-such such used to be. I didn't know that such-and-such such was ever here. So it doesn't help much. But if you tell that to anybody else that's been here for a few years, they know exactly what you're talking about. Same thing as when they read that, heard that verse, they hear when John was arrested. Everybody knew what happened to John the Baptist. It was a very well-known information. It was not only recorded in the Gospels, it is also recorded in the ancient works of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. So it is a very well-documented death, what happened to John the Baptist. So they know he was arrested. They know after he was arrested, he was eventually beheaded by Herod, as a party favor. And the reason he was arrested was because he was preaching preaching a message of repentance against Herod's inappropriate relationship. Which, by the way, if anybody tells you that Christians should not preach against bad, immoral relationships, then you're going to have to explain Then John the Baptist went to jail for nothing. Because that's what he was preaching against. But anyways, that's another issue. But John the Baptist was arrested by Herod. But so, when a Jesus, so it says Jesus went into Galilee. Who was in control of Galilee at that time? Herod, the same guy who arrested John the Baptist. By the way, this is not Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great's son. And then it says that he's preaching repentance. The very same message That John was preaching. In other words. It is making it clear to the reader. That Jesus is going. Into the the lion's den. Going right into the face of death. To preach this gospel. And very likely. Those who are reading Mark's gospel. Had some idea. As to what would happen to Jesus. They had an idea. That he was to be crucified. The Gospel of Mark, if you're talking about literary style, is a, go- is, a, is a literature of tragedy. All of it is anchoring around, pointing to what would happen at the end of chapter 15, and that is the death of Jesus. And, the re- and a big part of it is, the people did not know who he is. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, nobody knows who Jesus is. Except for one human being, which you have to be here on Holy Week to find out who that is, or just read your Gospel of Mark and find out, your choice. Or, actually do both, that's actually, actually going to do it both, read it and come to church. The other, the only other pe- group that knows who Jesus is are the demons. So at this text that we read a question that can be asked is in this text which group are you a part of? Or I should say which group are you, do you fall into more often? Are you like the scribes, the Pharisees, the crowds? Seeing these things that Jesus is saying, doing, saying, hearing what he's teaching but not quite certain as to who he is? Or coming up with your own ideas as to who he is? There's a book I read a few years ago. It's a very interesting one. It's called Imaginary Jesus. It's a kind of a fictional story about this guy in Portland who's running around Portland with this guy that he thinks is the real Jesus. And eventually you realize it's an imaginary one. And he comes into contact with a multitude of other fake Jesuses. For example, there's... Political action Jesus. He's the one that's got a nice suit. He's got a red colored tie. He definitely has the, the president right on his, on, ready to call, and could be, could be any political party, but just the president he could call. He's all about the politics. That's what that Jesus exists, is to push political power. Or you have social justice warrior Jesus. He's the one that he is up and at, him, really ready to fight for the, fight for the poor, take from the rich, type thing, kind of a bit of a Robin Hood. But he really has no mouth because he does these great things for people, but he doesn't actually speak. Or you have the other one that's the dogmatic Jesus, or the one that's the one that just simply talks and talks and talks, but doesn't do anything. There's all kinds of different Jesuses we come up with. Very often you'll hear people say, well, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good man. But he wasn't God. You might hear people say that. C.S. Lewis, when he he was confronting this little theory, the problem with the idea of saying that Jesus was a good man is that if he he is not God, he cannot be a good man. The reason is, is because Jesus forgave sins. Not just one sin, every sin a human being had ever committed. So let's take this, kind of use an analogy. Let's say I went into Subway and I just randomly punched the guy behind the counter. I don't know why I picked Subway, but that was the random place that came to the top of my head. And I have nothing against Subway. It's nothing personal against Subway. But that example. Now who's the only person that could forgive me for punching that person? Could one of you come in and say, I forgive you for punching that guy? You could, but it's a meaningless forgiveness. The only person that can actually forgive me for doing that is the guy that was behind the counter who I punched. But see, when Jesus forgave sins, he forgave every single sin that was ever committed. Now the only person whom every single sin that is ever committed is committed against is God. When he, conf- he forgives all sins, he is confessing that he is God. If he is not God, he is not a good person. If he is not God, he is either a liar A demon or he has to be telling the truth he is God you cannot say he was a good man given the things that he said and I know what sometimes people do and I've heard this from especially some more liberal theologians is they'll say well I don't believe that Jesus would act this way or he wouldn't do this or he wouldn't do that pointing to certain points in Scripture and so they try to eliminate parts the only problem with that is you have to ask them right away. Well, how do you get that idea as to the type of person Jesus is? I mean, there is there's writings outside of the Bible that affirms that Jesus existed. Read, read writings from people like Tacitus. I know these means, names mean nothing, but if you ever hear somebody say, "Oh, there's no evidence Jesus ever existed," this evidence this is actually important info. But Tacitus, uh, Plinyus. Uh, What is Plinius the Younger, I think it is? uh, Josephus. There's a whole slew of writings outside of the New Testament attesting to that Jesus existed. But none of them really give a lot of detail into the life of Jesus. Only the Gospels do that. So when somebody says that I can't believe Jesus would do this one thing in the Gospel, they can't do that. That is an inconsistency because everything they know about who Jesus is, is from the very same gospel they're trying to cut under. At which point, you're trying to craft Jesus into your own image. Which, by the way, I guarantee it, we do that one over and over. How often does Jesus look exactly like the way we think he should look, rather than the way that the Bible actually depicts him? That's the first crowd. They come up with our ide- We come up to with our ideas to who he is. But then you have the demons. They know exactly who Jesus is. He is Son of God, Eternal Savior, as we just sang. He is the Prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy. He is the one who spoke the world into creation. He is true God and true man. They know that he's the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings. They know exactly who he is. But as James says, the demons believe that there is a God and they shudder. You see, these demons hate Jesus. They know who he is, but they don't like him. They don't have faith. How many people will say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe in him. But here's the thing. Do they actually trust him? Faith is synonymous with the word trust. So let's take, for example, let's say that you come up to a frozen lake. And you say, I believe that that ice is, is thick enough for me to walk out onto it. Now, does that really matter unless you actually walk onto it? If, it, if you don't walk onto it, you're just making a statement of fact that you're going on about your life. Faith actually means that you take action. You put that trust into mov- movement. In other words, how often do I hear people say, well, I believe, oh, this person or that person, they believe in God. They may never go to church, but they believe, they have faith, in, they believe in God. How c- That'd be like saying, I love my wife, but I only eat dinner with her twice a year. Or only hear, I only like to listen, now I know some people are like, yeah, my, my husband never listens to me anyways. But, hypothetically, he never hears me say anything. He knows, in fact, he doesn't even go anywhere I talk. He avoids being around where I'm at. See, here in the divine service, at what we have on Sunday morning or Saturday evening, you come to hear God's word. To receive His Holy Supper. How can one say that they have faith in Him? That they trust Him and yet refuse to receive His gifts? That is not faith. That is not trust. You may know that you can receive the gifts in theory. But it isn't faith. That is why, just as a marriage where, they, where the husband and wife do spend very little time together, when that, that marriage is on shaky ground and will not last long, so also, when someone withdraws themselves from God's Word, from His sacrament, from long enough, that faith will crumble and come crashing down. Faith So which crowd are we in? I think to some degree we fall into both of those crowds every day. And ultimately every sin we ever commit comes down to the moments when our faith is lacking. Think to the Ten Commandments. What is the beginning of every meaning? We believe that we... What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God What's the next two words? So that. We cannot keep God's commandments without fear, love, and trust. It is by that faith that we are able to keep God's commandments. Every time we break the commandments, it comes down to no faith. And so, this is why we come to hear God's word. This is why we receive his sacrament. Because by his word, by his sacrament, faith is given to us. Faith is given to you. You are strengthened in your relationship to Christ. You are strengthened in your unity to Him. Your sins wiped away. Forgiveness given. See, the reason Jesus went into Galilee, into the lion's den, where He knew He would be killed, is because He had to die. He had to be crucified. He had to be rejected. Because by His death, by His resurrection... He gives us the grace that is needed. And He continuously pours it on us. Continuously strengthens us every time we hear His Word. Every time we receive the Supper. Every time we come to the altar. When you heard those words, and instead, and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Every time you hear those words, that is the grace of God coming to you. And you being renewed and strengthened. Now in between our little texts, Jesus gives a command to the disciples to be fishers of men. You carry that word that creates faith. You've heard it. And I guarantee it, you know way more than you realize you do. If you think, I don't know enough to tell somebody, yes, you do. Go tell someone. Bring the word to them. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's right, I'm telling you, even those who have ugly yellow toenails, your feet could be beautiful. By going and bringing the news of Jesus to others. Cast the net of his word. Unto the world. Because how else will they believe if no one has told them? You have faith. You have grace. You have salvation. So send it forth unto others. In Jesus name. Amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keeping the one true faith to life everlasting. Amen. At this time, we continue with the gathering of our offering, and as the offering is gathered, we'll sing the next hymn.